Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, May 24th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The latest floating wind farm technology and the part of the U.S. that could make the biggest difference when it comes to offshore wind energy. And what we can learn from the Amish about how we use technology. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The northeast coast of the U.S. holds the potential to fulfill the country's annual energy needs without emitting any carbon dioxide. How? Wind farms. The eastern coast of the U.S. is a prime location for wind power generation due to the strong offshore winds and their proximity to population centers. The coast is also on a shallow continental shelf compared with the west coast's steep shelf, so it's easier to install the wind turbines on the seafloor. There are plans to build 13 offshore wind projects along the East Coast within the next five years, which would generate 9,100 megawatts of wind energy. If all potential wind energy was utilized on both coasts, the Department of Energy estimates it would produce 2,000 gigawatts and be capable of meeting the country's energy needs four times over. For now, the Biden administration has set a comparatively modest goal of generating 30 gigawatts of electricity from offshore wind by 2030. And just to put that 30 gigawatts into perspective for you, you only need 1.21 gigawatts in order to power your DeLorean-based time machine, so 30 is an incredible amount of energy. But building the offshore wind farms has not been without pushback. In fact, according to New York Magazine's Intelligencer, plans for a wind farm five miles off the coast of Cape Cod faced 20 years of opposition from locals before finally being scrapped. But now, one is finally being built 12 miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Called Vineyard Wind, it will be the U.S.'s first commercial-scale offshore wind farm, and its 62 turbines are expected to generate 800 megawatts of electricity once the farm is up and running in two years. That is enough to power 400,000 homes. Apart from changing sentiment and urgency expressed by advocates, not to mention a new presidential administration giving the project the green light after the previous one planted roadblocks to prevent it from moving forward, part of why Vineyard Wind is actually going forward when Cape Wind didn't is because the price of wind energy has decreased substantially. Quoting the Intelligencer, We found that costs have decreased so much more in the last five years than any of the experts were predicting it to do, said Aaron Baker, professor and faculty director of the Energy Transition Initiative at the University of Massachusetts. During that period, she said, offshore wind electricity production has quadrupled across the world. Baker and colleagues published an article in Nature predicting that the cost of wind energy will fall 50% between now and 2050. Cape Wind was over 20 cents a kilowatt hour, and Vineyard Wind is coming in at 6.5 cents total in our price point. Kathleen Theoherides, Massachusetts Energy and Environment Secretary, said, It's a much more competitive price that actually saves ratepayers money, which Cape Wind does not bother to do. End quote. Now, there are other concerns beyond immediate cost. Plans for any offshore wind farms have to consider disruption to marine life and the fishing industry. Though, fortunately, a long-term study released last year showed that 35 turbines off the coast of England had, quoting again, no discernible impact on the area's highly productive lobster fisheries, end quote. 
And while the particularly windy coast of Massachusetts has some people calling the region, according to Theo Herides, the Saudi Arabia of wind, the challenges are greater on the west coast. Remember how I said the continental shelf over there is much steeper? Well, due to that, they're mostly looking at floating wind farms. Floating wind farms are much more costly and technologically complex, but just today, GE shared some advancements they've recently made with the assistance of a $3 million award from the U.S. Department of Energy. So first, despite their name, all floating wind farms do attach to the seafloor, but with tethers as opposed to the main pole going all the way to the seafloor. GE's big innovation thus far, as announced today at the Department of Energy's Energy Innovation Summit, is a redesign of the platform that holds the wind turbine up on top of those tethers, and some built-in sensors and computers that would assist the turbine when it faces strong winds and waves. Rogier Blom, GE's principal investigator on the project, said that designing a turbine that floats on the water is like, quote, putting a bus on a tall pole, making it float, and then stabilizing it while it interacts with wind and waves, end quote. And just for some context of scale here, GE is modeling this prototype on their largest turbine model, which The Verge describes as being nearly as tall as the Statue of Liberty and the Washington Monument combined. Quoting The Verge, GE is using a so-called tension leg platform that's anchored to the seabed with adjustable tendons. Its new technology would be able to sense gusts of wind and swells in the ocean and, in real time, adjust the length of the tendons accordingly so that the platform can smoothly ride the waves. Blom describes the process as see, think, do. The control system's sensors, for example, detect a change in wind speed, determine how that change affects the turbine, and then make adjustments to respond. Tension leg platforms are innovative and one of the most stable platform designs, according to Walt Musial, a principal engineer who leads offshore wind research at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. But it's also very difficult to install, and a prototype hasn't even been demonstrated yet with a full-scale offshore wind turbine on top, although similar technology has been used for offshore oil production. Then again, everything about floating wind farms is still pretty novel. There are only a handful of floating wind turbines operating in the world and no commercial-scale wind farms, end quote. Musial thinks it will be a few years before commercial-scale wind farms come online, and most likely in Asia first. Some people do think the development of floating wind turbines might take too long. But if we can get them up and running, it will be a huge boon for wind energy. The Verge notes that current wind turbines can't go more than 60 meters deep, which puts 60% of offshore wind resources in the U.S. out of reach. Plus, for coastal residents worried about wind turbines affecting the marine or bird populations, these further-out floating turbines could be a great compromise. So there are a lot of positives, and non-floating offshore wind turbines continue to improve as well, but there's no question that we're racing against the clock. Quoting once more from New York Magazine, The promise of offshore wind is great, but the amount needed to win the fight against climate change is still enormous. In Massachusetts, to reach the goal of net-zero carbon emissions by 2050, the state would need to deliver an offshore wind project of a similar size to Vineyard Wind each year, starting in 2030. It's really clear that we cannot get to our ambitious climate goals without wind, Theo Hardy said, end quote.
Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania. Must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. Even though the Amish are frequently associated with their low-tech or no-tech lifestyles, there's actually a lot we can learn from them about the ways we incorporate technology into our own lives, and not just in terms of not using it, but rather how we do. At least that's the argument of Alex Mayasi, who wrote in Psych about the slow and deliberate approach that some Amish people and communities take to new technology. And I say some because the Amish are quite decentralized. There are a lot of different sects with different community standards and values. Some technology may be more frowned upon in one community versus another. Overall, however, that decentralization means that it's rare for something to be entirely forbidden. Rather, they're selective and able to make decisions on a case-by-case basis within their smaller community. And the deciding factor is often a combination of the utility and the potential for harm. For example, quoting Psych, many Amish communities shunned car ownership after watching car-owning families drive away for the weekend and play a reduced role in small-town life. Many banned phones in the house once their threat to the cherished tradition of neighborly visits became clear, end quote. Instead, quoting again, many Amish families share a telephone shanty, that is, they keep a telephone in a small structure and walk to it to make the occasional call or check their voicemail. And many Amish who are not allowed to own cars will accept rides in taxis, ambulances, or, his personal favorite, buses that drive straight to Amish Vegas, a Florida beach town where Amish let loose by playing shuffleboard and eating ice cream. End quote. And more practically, some do have to rely on tech for things like banking, for example. Ola Yoder, an Amish resident from Indiana who spoke to Mayasi for the article, points out that ATMs have to sometimes be used for business reasons. The most likely reason certain interactions with tech will be allowed in his community because, as he says, the world is changing. And like in any community, there have always been Amish people who are interested in technology. Mayasi calls them hackers and compares them to early adopters of the internet. There are absolutely some people among the Amish who are tinkering away with various forms of tech, from light bulbs to computers in their basements, and how that's received will vary from community to community. But in general, it's important to keep in mind that the Amish writ large are not opposed to technology as a blanket rule. In fact, they embrace many aspects of it. But the key is not using technology just because. Quoting again, The Amish don't adopt every single new technology or use cars, phones, and social media as soon as they become the norm. Instead, the Amish makes slow and deliberate decisions as a collective. Rather than rushing optimistically or blindly into the future, they move forward cautiously, open but skeptical. End quote. Or as Donald Craybill put it in his 1989 book, The Riddle of the Amish, quote, The Amish adopt technology selectively, hoping that the tools they use will build community rather than harm it. End quote. 
To that end, Mayasi recommends a few practices we can learn and adapt from the Amish if we too want to be a bit more intentional with our technology usage. First, really think about the utility of a new app or device beforehand. Maybe give it a trial period and think deeply about how it affects your life. Even ask people in your life if they've seen ways that it influences you, both good and bad. And if it doesn't meet your expectations or is producing negative outcomes, that doesn't mean you have to give it up cold turkey. Maybe think about how you can tweak your usage. Like, is Instagram altogether bad for you? Or if you only followed your best friends and loved ones, would it actually be a positive outlet? Or would employing apps that lock you out of email or social media at the end of the day, or even straight up turning off your devices for certain periods of time, make those tools more productive and less draining? Quoting again, as you pick and choose, adapting technology to your needs, it might help to establish a set of guiding principles. For example, the Amish ethos places prime value on family and neighborly life. It also strives to maintain a separation from the world, which informs their policy of not connecting to the electric grid, but rather powering appliances with batteries or other alternatives. End quote. It may seem like a pointless way of trying to work around a rule, you know, using battery-operated appliances or being allowed to use a telephone at a booth but not one you own. But when you understand the guiding principle behind it, it starts to make sense. It's about not opening the door to fall down the rabbit hole that some of those allowances, like being on the electric grid, could lead to. As another example, when I do a 24-hour tech Sabbath once a month, I've decided my guiding principles are not being productive and not getting distracted in order to relax and clear my mind. So even though kicking back and watching some Netflix would be relaxing and definitely not productive, if I had to turn on one of my devices to get to Netflix, I would inevitably get distracted, possibly with some work-related item or other stressor. So I turn off all my devices and go fully analog for those 24 hours. It might sound extreme for some or like I'm splitting hairs over it, but for me, it's all rooted in a particular purpose and I'm able to make decisions on a case-by-case basis by returning to my guiding principles. And Mayasi validates me a little bit here, quote, above all, decide to be okay with seeming eccentric. The Amish's unusual approach has allowed them to survive for centuries, even while other cooperatives and intentional communities fall by the wayside. Most Silicon Valley CEOs severely restrict their own children's access to phones and screens. Given that current research suggests that millions of people are carrying machines in their pockets that stress them out and make them unhappy, perhaps an approach that seems a little unusual is called for. End quote. Several dating apps, including OkCupid, Tinder, Plenty of Fish, Hinge, and Bumble, announced on Friday that they've added badges and filters for people who are vaccinated. So you can display your vaccination status and also filter for matches based on other people who are vaccinated as well. Some apps are also offering premium content that's usually available for a fee, things like super swipes, and all of them will also include information about where to get vaccinated. The move was announced at a virtual press briefing by the White House COVID-19 response team. Senior White House advisor Andy Slavitt could not have looked less enthused about being picked to read out lines like, quote, We have finally found the one thing that makes us all more attractive, a vaccination, 
end quote, while Dr. Fauci just laughed behind him. Jokes and awkwardness of public health officials aside, it's a pretty great move, as Slavit announced, quoting Ars Technica, OKCupid okay reports that users who say they are vaccinated or are planning to get vaccinated are getting 15% more likes and 14% more matches while having 4.5% more conversations, end quote. As with every phase of the pandemic, it's been great to see companies from all different sectors figuring out how they can do their part. And honestly, this fulfills a real need. You know, I've heard plenty of people worrying about the awkwardness of returning to dating and how to have those tough conversations about whether the person you're meeting up with has been vaccinated or what other risk factors in their life may be like. These I'm vaccinated badges aren't a silver bullet because, of course, there's no way to stop someone from lying, but it's a good start. And, you know, as awkward as it may feel, asking someone you're potentially getting involved with certain slightly personal questions is all in the name of you both staying safe, and in many ways is nothing new. So maybe these initiatives from the dating apps themselves can help get the ball rolling for anyone that could use a little nudge. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.